Hi. Welcome to Cinemad. This is podcast number two. Cinemad is an online film zine covering the edge of cinema. You can find us at iblamesociety.com. Today's podcast is with Aza Jacobs. Aza's made four feature films. He went to film school at SUNY Purchase and then AFI, where he started his first feature, Nobody Needs to Know. After that, he made the cult indie film The Good Times Kid and followed that up with Mama's Man, which premiered at Sundance and enjoyed a nice run in theaters. Mama's Man tells the story of a 30-something guy who is hiding from his life and responsibilities back at his childhood home. Aza's real parents star in the film. Ken and Flo Jacobs are legends in the avant-garde film and art world. They've made amazing, artistic, unconventional films, and they're also known for the Nervous Magic Lantern series, which are live performances with just the projector and its light. Aza's new film was just released in New York and L.A. and will be coming out to the rest of the country. It's called Terry. It stars Jacob Wysocki as an unpopular but smart 15-year-old and John C. Riley as a guidance counselor trying to connect with him. The film's great. It's funny and realistic. I like coming-of-age films as a genre, but most don't really have outsider kids. They have hot actors playing them. And then they blossom and become mainstream at the end, and that's seen as some sort of victory. Terry does not do that. It captures real and confusing teenage experiences. It's hilarious, and it has some dark truths. Being funny but realistic is becoming Aza's style through all of his movies. Here's Aza. Aza, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we, Terry is about to come out, but uh, the first time I met you, I guess, was at Cinevegas when you came out just as Gerardo's buddy. That is true, and that was a uncomfortable place to be. <laughs> Wait, why? You mean metaphorically, well, or you, you learn quickly that you shouldn't go to film festivals that aren't your own? You oh know? yeah, because it just you, the whole time you're sitting there going, I should, I should be up there instead. You know, fuck Gerardo, <laughs> I should be standing there with my movie, man. Wait till they see what I have. You know, and also, I think right around that time, um, had I fi- this is two thousand and four. I think so. Yeah, because so, before you made Good Times Kid. Yeah, so I had finished Nobody Needs to Know, which kind of um, had already found, had already kind of hit the wall and as far as getting out there. So it was probably kind of in a Like you got a lot place. of rejections and you played a few places? or. Um, yeah, exactly. Like I, um, exactly that. Really, I, you know, I played a very few places and... It turned out not to be the film that I believe, I believe it still is, you know, but I definitely found out through other people's eyes that it wasn't mm-hmm. connecting with most. Mm-hmm. But when I did meet you in Sydney uh, Vegas, that was the beginning of Good Times Kid, you know, I'd mm-hmm. gone down there not only to support Gerardo, but because I was kind of in a really low spot and trying to figure out how to keep going, how to go back to a place of remembering that this was something that I loved doing. Mm-hmm. And so the plan was to meet Gerardo there, that he had that free hotel from you guys, you know, um, and right. that we'd we'd start writing the Good Times Kid there. Right. And you guys, <coughs> this is Gerardo Naranjo. Naranjo? Naranjo. He made, um, I say that like I don't know him, so I've known him all these years. should ask him how to say his name. The uh, Who really knows him? <laughs> his film was Mala Chance, but you guys went to AFI together, right? That's how we you went met. to AFI, um, and during AFI, he was making, he was working on Mala Chance. He was right. writing and 
and I think began shooting maybe that summer that we got out. I had been shooting mm-hmm. Nobody Needs to Know throughout the school year that last year on weekends and on breaks in the summer. So and it wasn't then, like an actual class project? You were just happening no, in school? No, my plan was I had written the script before getting to AFI, and my plan was I figured I would sh- every time they – I had an assignment. I would shoot another scene of the film, and um, but it soon turned out that you couldn't. The way the school structured that it wasn't set up for that. You know, they wanted you to work on this or that or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, as a kind of balance to the very traditional filmmaking that I was learning and that I was enjoying learning from AFI, I started working on Nobody Needs to Know, which wasn't a very narrative film as the kind of way to kind of keep me somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Oh, did you actually set out to make experimental movie or just? I what? thought it was. I thought it was a really. I thought it was Hollywood what I was making. <laughs> I mean, that's what the surprise was. You know, I, I, when I remembered, you know, that first <clears throat> screening, you know, it, it premiered in Rotterdam, mm-hmm. and uh, that first screening, you know, after a couple minutes, somebody getting up, and a couple more minutes, somebody else, and then somebody else, and then slowly watching this theater just empty out, I was thinking, but it's so easy. I mean, there's there's actors, there's music. I mean, what? <laughs> even if you didn't like it, I couldn't see not right. sticking through. Right. Like, that's, I think of the Sky Socialist for that, you know? Like, that, I understand right. when people get up at my father's work. But right. um, I wasn't expecting that with nobody. Yeah, so is that what, so you grew up, your parents are Ken and Flo Jacobs, and people either know them from your film, Mama's Man, or they know them as the avant-garde superstars that they are. But so growing up in that scene, because it's not just like, oh, my parents are making interesting, weird things. It's that, you know, in the review of Mama's Man, Jay Hoberman, the... I guess you can say famous critic, the great critic, the longtime critic, was, oh, well, uh, it's hard for me to review this because Aza is also known as Mr. Baby to me. (laughs) (laughs) So growing up in this scene in New York, surrounded by all of these other people making super unusual work, does that jade you or is it just things your parents and their friends did? It never jaded me. It just kind of gave me a, it gave me pointers of, things to strive for and things to move away from mm-hmm. you know i do have this very early memory of my father like talking about emptying out theaters he had a mm-hmm. screening of i think the philippines adventure at a museum and i was a little kid and i remember just cringing as each person got up until one after the other after the other until the theater which was a full theater wound up being really i think one person left and i do remember this guy that was close to me an old man standing up going yelling what is the meaning of this mr jacobs (laughs) (laughs) man that stayed with me you know Uh because it that was a good question like i i wanted like i this was the movies I knew. This is the movies I knew before I saw story movies. So I didn't know these things as a difference of thing. They just they were interesting. They were they were, they were movies to me. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that happened that one person that was left, you know, that uh, was 
I remember the look on that person's face too at the, after the film ended and the thanks that he gave my father as mm-hmm. for the first time feeling that, that, that he hadn't been marooned, that this was out there, that this was something extremely important being given to him and extremely generous. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was a, as an interesting thing to be like, I be taken by both those extremes mm-hmm. and especially at that screening. So I don't know. I mean, I, um, there, there's, there's a lot that I strive for. And at the same time, um, there's something else different that I want. I still have this kind of urge to not empty out theaters. Sure. Or I'm more worried about. It. I wish I wasn't. Right. You know, I have a really good time of keeping the audience out of my mind while shooting films. Mm-hmm. And now that the film is about to get released, I'm having a very difficult time blocking it and knowing that it's it's not up to me anymore. And um, mm-hmm. it's what, something I'm definitely struggling with. What about when you're writing it though? Too, are you taking any of these things? Because <clears throat> Good Times Kid, Mama's Man, and and this one. It's not, um, you know, indie film is the lame catch-all term, but you're definitely you're 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 in between the stuff that isn't experimental anymore, <clears throat> but you're not just sort of like placating simple stories either or simple characters. Yeah, I mean, the writing for me is is enjoyable, and that's what kind of keeps me going with it. When I'm when I'm hitting walls and stories, it's usually a sign that I'm not going down the right direction for me um and my all my aims with the writing is pretty low like i'm not i'm not writing to make something brilliant and or to make something particularly good i'm really looking for a story that i'll have space in that i'll be able to get to explore on set and be able to get in there and i don't mean in an improv way mm-hmm. but i mean in a way of experiencing, truly experiencing it while I'm shooting it and being fully there. Once I'm, I'll be there with actors or by the time I get to that place that I, I'm on set, that I'll have gone through something so much more than what will just what, what I'm going on while I'm writing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm looking for templates more than anything. Even though I want with, with Terry and with Mama's Man and even Good Times Kid, there was all those lines were written and all those every, all those scenes wind up. When I look back at those scripts, I get really surprised at how much we stick to them. But I think th- if there was any lesson with trying to write the first feature with writing Nobody Needs Know, which I wrote over and over and over and over again for mm-hmm. you know five or six years, is that I was trying to be you know smarter than I am. Right. That's the problem of being that age in college though too right and the truth but i i miss it man i wish (laughs) no i just wish i had those guts i wish i could aim Mm. as high as i did i don't and maybe someday i'll get to that place where i really think i can change the world again but i missed having i missed having that kind of strength that when i was writing i felt that every single word every letter that i typed was was Revolutionary, right? Like a type, like an actual typewriter <coughs> that weighs a ton, like some pounding down every letter. <laughs> yeah, because that's what we, that's what we, you know. I remember, um, I'd, I'd always felt so guilty whenever I took hallucinogens because I, I was under the impression that you had to do something 
mm-hmm. really good on your trip that you had to write on the road or you know or <laughs> just draw right. like um you know underground comic or you know like a art crumb or something you know you, you're right. supposed to suddenly become basil Wolverton or somebody amazing you know right and i just would wind up obviously you know staring at the wall or whatever watching it breathe and but always having this nagging guilt like isn't this my moment to be doing something? I have this window into consciousness, <laughs> but then I would just, you know, and then I'd forget whatever it was, and you know. But I mean, I think your films are good enough that's not just a family business. And I felt mm-hmm. like you—I don't think that you had to actually just do this because it was easy or because oh, people are expecting this because my parents do it. Is there a point where you're like, no, this is something I want to pursue because it means something particular to me? There, there wasn't that point. It really was just something that kind of eased into and what I was good at, you know, at what I, mm-hmm. what I was confident at. Um, you know, I had ideas of being, you know, a rock star or any of these things that you think about doing. Um, mm-hmm. But I wasn't particularly good, you know. I were you, were you, in a, were you in playing in a band? No, no, I did have a guitar, but you know, I think. <laughs> Once I learned a power chord, that was about as far as I got, you know. And uh, I yeah. learned maybe wrote one good oi song, and that's about as far as I got. <laughs> could be that could be yeah that could be a massive hit by this point. But um, <laughs> you know, I think it just went oi 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 oi. Um, if you just kept <laughs> see where it's at now, see how many people have gotten this far with that. Well, that yeah, I mean you know that that was kind of the riff that I was doing in. Uh, when yeah. Mikey finds the guitar and his in, old lyric book. In Mama's Man, yeah. But actually, I wrote that lyric book uh, for Mama's Man, and I had so much fun writing those lyrics, <laughs> and I was already the best time, and I thought, fuck you. Like, that was just so, it just spilled out, man. Right. It just, it just, it, um, but, um, and so then... So, it, it just, it felt natural to keep doing it. Yeah, I mean, I wound up making a Super 8 film, yeah. um, and, which, in some ways, was a lot, kind of like, uh, you know, I shot I shot high school. You know, I went to Humanities High School. I remember shooting there and shooting mm-hmm. Piero, who wound up uh, in Mama's Man, who plays the, you know, the old friend who uh, just came out of jail. And mm. my mom and my dad. I mean, you know, I made Mama's Man then, I guess, on right. Super 8. And then uh, wound up going to SUNY Purchase. Mm-hmm. And I think it really was that school that kind of the purchase you know what was incredible about that school was the their question to you always was do you have something to say like do you have something to say all the time whenever you made something do you have something is you know and it wasn't and they would teach you kind of the basic fundamentals on 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 how to say that but very basic, you know? You didn't learn anything about permits or st- at this time, scri- script writing, any of that stuff, how to crew, how to business, anything about business. But the question was, do you have something to say? And the more they asked me, the more I felt like, yeah, I do have something, I do have something. And that's, and then once I kind of found, um, once I wound up at Purchase starting to see these filmmakers that were in between my parents and Hollywood, like, like Hartley was one of your teachers? He, he wasn't, but oh. he'd come and I'd start, you know, his work. He, he came, he started teaching after I left. 
I, he went back there to teach at some point. Mm-hmm. But um, but it is where I first saw, you know, Stranger Than Paradise or mm-hmm. Godard or Cassafetes. That was all there, and I go, wow, there's there's something else right in between these these worlds. Like, what did AFI do as the next step? Is it more? If I was the other side, yeah. I mean, I came out of, I came out of purchase. I made uh, my thesis film, Crook and Carrie, which uh, was a 26 minute film that took me, you know, a long time to work on, but Mm -hmm. it it wound up getting some nice respect and festival play. And I definitely was something that I was proud of and, and certain people liked. And it was an encouraging. It was encouraging, and it made me want to do a feature film, but I did not have an, any idea on not only about how to go about writing a feature, but really how to pull together a feature. And AFI, from what I understood, was a straight-up Hollywood school, mm-hmm. and it would teach me the tools that I could either then use or not use. Um, but I wanted to know those tools. Right. And then so after, so you've gone to two colleges... You made a feature that people decided they wanted to go to the lobby for. <laughs> so then at this and point... And in Rotterdam, too, which they're like, what, they're really? open to... Yeah. I mean, that's... Wow. The, yeah, so... Yeah, that's bad. That's bad well, news. <laughs> we can't get into, but you know, into um, that. But, it, you know, yeah. it's it's that's the hard part. It is every fest has this idea, but then people have expectations either way, where then it, it, if you don't get into if you get into a mainstream festival then sometimes you're not mainstream enough and sometimes in the same way you get into a more artistic film festival and you're not artistic enough yeah you know, where you're up, put up against like yeah by the way we know we're not Tarkovsky. maybe that's what it was maybe it wasn't enough this and maybe it wasn't enough that yeah. maybe it was right in between and hadn't i don't know so what's going through your head while you're in vegas with gerardo and working on this next film like why <clears throat> how do you just sort of fight off being you know, um, just too bummed out to do something else. I, you know, I have, I, by that point, I was with Diaz, who's you know now my wife, and so I had that love and support, and I had found in Gerardo not only somebody that I loved being with and, you know, who mm-hmm. could make me laugh and who I could make laugh, but was making things that I really cared about and showing me things that I really cared about. With Gerardo, you know, through Gerardo, I saw Karis Maki, you know, and we were able to trade, you know, he was my upstairs neighbor. At some point he moved in mm-hmm. and we were able to trade each other movies. To, all right, I'd show him, you know, Forbidden Zone. He'd show me this. Or he'd show, for the films that we loved mm-hmm. and we were able to kind of create a, there was something that I just, I just, I just like so enjoyed being with him. Yeah. yeah. And I wanted to be, I wanted to work with him and I wanted, and we talked about that time at, at AFI, we said someday we should make a film and all we got, I think I told you this, uh, as far as we got was just the title, the good times kid. And we said, <laughs> look, I'd go see a movie called the good times. Kid. All I know is I don't know what that is, but I think, you know, I remember and we were like, that's a movie, you know? And, um, and that's kind of as far as we got with it. And then uh, I needed Gerardo, man. And maybe he mm-hmm. needed me because Mala Chance didn't do particularly well. Um, right. I mean, he never really finished it. I think that screening at Cine Vegas was the only screening. Oh, no, no, there was an AFI screening. Right. 
but it never got it's a it's done. a it's a really good little film and you feel like it's somebody just got out of school trying something cool first feature so maybe we were in similar places you know yeah. maybe we're both in similar places and i think both movies had left behind a lot of broken relationships mm-hmm. because we were asking for the impossible from people and the people that delivered you'll never ever forget and you're always being indebted to the people that didn't deliver you'll never forget it just doesn't happen you know mm-hmm. uh, i could see them now i could shake their hands now on the street but i'll always remember the fact that they let me down when i needed them on those first films you know so i think Gerardo and i were even we were both in vegas and i think we're also just a similar place spiritually where we needed to lean on each other and um and had to go back to what we liked and also what we had like i think we both had shot our films without knowing how we we're going to finish it and the difference between between um with what good times kid was is that we we're setting out we were going to shoot this thing from beginning to end in a consecutive row and we were going to get to that last day we were, before we started that first day of shooting we knew how we were going to get to that last day it wasn't going to be shooting raising money shooting raising money shooting raising money we're going to stay on a track mm-hmm you know, we tried to write in Vegas, and it turned out that the windows don't open there, right? And that, no, uh, they don't. and it was just insane, right? It was just <laughs> fucking lunacy being stuck in a room trying right. to write. And he got super sick, some kind of, you know, and it was all night cooled up and just like, and um, I was like, uh, dude, we gotta get out of here, man. We gotta like. There was a budget downstairs at that place. I forgot where we were staying. <clears throat> you were what, the Rio was, or something. Is that where you guys put him up? It if it wasn't the Palms, maybe it was the Palms. It was, was probably something. the Palms because because he was in competition. Yeah, but like you know, every time we go, you know, we try to rewrite and we go downstairs and we walk downstairs and it was like first mm-hmm. off like thirty degrees, right? right? And then there was some girl sliding down a pole in the elevator and we're like, what? How can we even? It was so weird just trying to write, and then he's getting sicker and sicker. So I went down mm-hmm. to that budget, and there was a deal for budget. Like, you mean a rent a car? Yeah, mm-hmm. and there was a deal for like twelve bucks a day mm-hmm. for a car, and um, and like it was straight out like a Vietnam pick, man. I put that dude on my shoulder, and we went down to the car, and we just drove, and we were like, uh, "Which way is away?" You know. <laughs> He carried his limp body. Yeah, it was, and he opened his eyes when when I hit the Grand Canyon. Seriously? Yeah, and he was just like, all of a sudden he was just better. He was just so much better. Like he's that's like that's like at least six hours, maybe more. I just kept driving and I was driving, and we were just going far (laughs) away from that place. Like you know, it was just the, and then we hit Vegas. I mean, we we hit um we hit the canyon. We sat out there and we're like, this is cool whatever and then we drove a little bit longer and we stopped for a coffee and they offered me soy milk in it and i was like dude let's stay here this is this is good man and i was in flagstaff sure and uh we were able to get a cheap motel mm-hmm. and um then we just started writing and writing and just hmm. making each other laugh and by the time we left there we had we had a script and we had a deal that you know, in a couple of months, in two months, we'd meet up in L.A. and shoot the film. How many days were you, did we end up in Flagstaff then? Maybe about nine or wow. seven or eight. I don't know. 
And then but, you had to take the car back to Vegas. Yeah, and then and uh, but I was able to return it at the airport. I dropped him off. He's going back to Mexico. I was going back to LA. We shook on it two months. Wow. We meet back in LA, and I'll work on getting together the rest of the crew and whatever. And you'll work on getting the film. And um, and and two other things helped make this happen. The Good Times Kid. Uh, one is uh, Diaz, and you have to tell the story of meeting her. Of uh, meeting Diaz? Yeah, yeah. Because the world, well, the world needs a romantic story. <laughs> well, I don't know how much. Well, all right. Here's the truth of the story, which yeah, yeah. sounds like a religious experience, but the fact is, is that right across the street from where we are right now, I was working. There's the this uh, car stereo place mm-hmm. um, right around this corner in uh, where are we? Silver Lake. Silver Lake. Silver Lake. Yeah. And I would always go there. I had a '77 Buick Century with bullet holes in it, and like it was a get a stock getaway car um, from America's Most Wanted. That really? I, yeah, I, when I first got here, I rented it from Interrec, and then I fell in love with the car, and I bought it off them, you know, for twelve hundred bucks, and it was just this amazing. And then my friend Gideon came and put these uh, red, gold, and green flames on the side that wrapped yeah. around the bullet. I mean, I just went for LA, you know. I was like, <laughs> fuck it, if I'm here, I'm gonna do this, you know, and. <clears throat> I started getting it was one of these cars you know first off gas was like 99 cents so it didn't mm-hmm. really and it was also I started really getting into like you know putting things in it so I figured out how to wire the stereo and then started getting speakers from St. Vincent de Paul and started like I put maybe 11 speakers in there like I, I, I was a kid you know I was what, 26 27 years old yeah and um, so I'd wind up over here on this corner talking to this, um, the Chinese guy that's on the corner that works on car stereos. Mm-hmm. And we'd kind of get in, he'd, we'd yell at each other and figure out how to make this all work. And he'd help me with wiring and stuff. Right. Um, and so at one point I was over there, and this is, I guess, 2000. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Diaz rode by on our bicycle and well first off hardly anybody rode on bikes back then you know so that was already striking this is before the this neighborhood got sort of blown up yeah i mean i think yeah 2000 this this is probably mellow yeah pretty maybe it was 99 i think it was 2000 Mm -hmm. and um so she rides by on a bicycle and so i'm wasn't used to seeing anybody on a bicycle but also to me she looked out of this world she just looked i mean man she just looked amazing to me and just the you know i couldn't figure out what ethnicity or anything and she just rode by and i was sure that she saw me and we had a moment now she says she did not notice me at all but i thought there was something that happened right there right classic yeah yeah i was like she sees she's enjoying like she sees I'm working on my car and she's impressed you know whatever I don't know but um that turned out not to be case but at the time I thought so and then that night dreamt about her fell in love with her told my parents the next morning like I was just like I fell in love with this girl and I remember my dad saying who is she and I was like I don't know where is she I don't know he was just okay you know and I was like but I'm gonna find her and from that point on, I just started asking everybody in the neighborhood about the bike girl, about, you know, this girl on the bike. Oh, the bike girl. Yeah, the bike girl. Yeah, I see her, whatever, the bike girl, this and that. And 
And I it was started, still, it was still, that's how rare it was, people riding bikes. Yeah. People knew the bike girl. Yeah, they knew her as the bike girl. And like, I'd find this person, oh yeah, the, you know, and she lived, she lived near here. She lived on Vendome, a block away. So she was definitely, you know, Silver Lake. I mean, she was in the neighborhood and I lived in Echo Park at the time. And it took about two months, but finally, after two months, um, I was I got a phone call one night from a friend who was just like, "Dude, I'm at a party and the bike girl just showed up," and I raced over there, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that was eleven years ago. And what did you say to her? Well, the first, the first thing I did is I stole beer from her. That was my first move. That was my <laughs> opening move. <laughs> and then that kind of opened up the conversation. Uh, we started dancing together. And this was at this party, like, uh, in Echo Park. And in the mean, in the conversation, I had found out that in four days' time, she was leaving to go backpacking in Spain with, like, a one-way ticket. She didn't know when she was coming back. Which completely ruined my all my plans, right? And it right. really bummed me out because that's not how things were supposed to go in my head, you know. Right. So, you know, so we then we wound up dancing, and then midway through dancing, she's just like, you know, um, can I kiss you? And you know, immediately I'm just like but you're you're taking off you know you're going you're leaving no like i didn't know because i know what that i i'm gonna fall in, like it'll be too much it'll be too painful for me and but she just forgot what i said we kissed and we hung out for those next few days wow and in those next few days um i made a mixtape and that way i knew if she was taking off i could get my hooks inside of her you know, and that's what I did with that tape. Right. Yeah. And was it still was it a cassette or is it CD? Yeah, it was a cassette. Wow. It was a cassette, and Old you know, school. I just knew what Clash song when to hit, and that brought her home. And I swear that tape <laughs> brought her home to me. You know, she just she said she hitchhiked all through Spain listening to that tape and loop, and I every song I said, "You're the one, you're the one, you're the one." <laughs> that is amazing. And then, and then the other thing that made the film happen was a certain amount of film stock yeah well that was the when Gerardo went off to when when he went back to Mexico is because he had heard that there was a bunch of um, black and white 16 millimeter stock that he could get his hands on from school or school something was going on so that was the plan was that would shoot on that and um, that fell through and then a uh, a week or two later I get this little quick time and this this urgent message from Gerardo, and um, basically this little quick time video was Gerardo <laughs> sitting in a room full of thirty five mil- boxes of thirty five millimeter stock, which this, as the story goes, it was somebody that had worked on um, on Troy and had been somewhat abused or something and felt that they would they would. Uh, that they were owed this film stock, even though they didn't know what to do with it. So it had been baking in somebody's apartment for about a year or so when we drove to wow. Tijuana and picked up Gerardo with about four and a half hours of 35 millimeter. So this is Troy, the sword and sandal, multi, multi-million dollar 
Hollywood film. And our and our working title like that for the labs was uh, Ashes of Troy. <laughs> that's what we figured <laughs> that this film was being made out of. So that's great. So when you guys are making the film, which you know now is finally out on a really good DVD and. And it's still fun now, but when you're making it, I mean, you must have felt so charmed to have oh, these man. things come together. Every night, it was hard to fall asleep because we were seeing it was doing exactly what we hoped. Like I was, we were having a good time, but it wasn't a party time. We weren't having. It wasn't a party. We were seeing things mm-hmm. happen in front of, and there was obviously no playback. There was no, you know, we'd oh. get dailies the next day. Um, oh, you were dailies. able to watch yeah. it, yeah. Um, but we still knew each night, like, things were happening in front of the camera. Like, hopefully the camera was recording them, you know, but things were happening. And it was just, um, that film, you know, it, it, it's, you know, I increasingly I get, um, you know, an email to this day. You know, maybe on a weekly basis, you know, that movie still makes its way out and people are still finding that film. And I I always knew that once we were finished that this film was going to just, it will find it, it's going to live. I mean, I knew it, but to get these kind of actual testaments of somebody contacting me on Facebook or something and saying, I love this movie. And that, you know, today, this morning, I woke up with somebody from Wichita, Kansas, you know, like I've never been that this idea that this movie is making it to these homes, it's also, it's incredibly, it's incredible timing for me, because, you know, I don't want, you know, as Terry's coming out, you know, there's this fear of like, okay, if it does it really, does it really, if it does very badly, people don't go to it, um, how am I gonna get to make another movie? Mm-hmm. And the whole thing about Good Times Kids, the, and it's like this thorn, which I'll always have, is that there'll be no excuse for me to not make a movie, you know? Right. That it's possible to do it without the thing, without aiming big. So Good Times Kid, it's still, I mean, I watched it recently, and it's still, it's not like it's caught in time, or it feels like uh, it's trying too hard to be an indie film. It just feels like this really nice, modest story about these two people who just sort of happen. Yeah, we aimed, we, our intentions and aims were very, very small. Like, we were making a film for us. Like, that exactly the type of movie yeah. that we wanted to make, that we want, that we want to watch. Like, yeah. that's our, that's the type of films that we, like, when Gerardo and Diaz and I sit together and we go to see whatever we go to see, like, we'll, we'd be so psyched to see that film. Right. And that's that, you know? And then everything after that. I, of course, once we were finished and I was proud of it, I wanted mm-hmm. people to see it. But we had already won. And then is it, how fast did you want to get into Mama's Man? And that, was it something you were always thinking about? Because in, in essence, it was something you made before? No, no. I, th- I don't remember the how what the shift was into making Mama's Man. It's a little unclear to me. It's not that, you know, Mama's... I mean, even Good Times Kid that it did that it premiered at the AFI Fest, you know, mm-hmm. still didn't get into Sundance, didn't get into South by, still didn't get into, didn't get into Rotterdam, didn't get into tons of festivals. They were still meeting up with, it was pre a lot of what I think got considered, uh, 
you know, mumblecore movies, even though I wouldn't, that whole thing hadn't begun yet. There wasn't really a space for it in a lot of these festivals. There was no um, Generation Next or whatever that side of Sundance is now, or that's for films underneath, what, under $100,000. That's, there's a neck, the next Next, section. The next section. It's, there's, there's no number. Oh. It's a matter of a vibe that there are a lot is being done with lesser means than what a giant film because and of course now we're in this age where indie films are freaking five million dollars right but they were then too i mean that that's the reality is that Mm -hmm. everybody was saying you know pulp fiction was indie film and that's still what we were um competing against in in a weird way and i believe that the good times could could would have had a space in uh, the next section and Sundance would have been kind of given mm-hmm. a certain type of validation that it didn't have. It wasn't like immediately, okay, there was still an incredible push on, um, even though we found out that there was a, there was a place for it, but to find that place. And um, I was able to show a, a almost, you know, close to finishing version to Richard Abramowitz, who mm-hmm. is a distributor and, um, he was able to get behind the film and kind of come on as a producer and really make it yeah, possible for us to finish that film and then to work hard on trying to figure out a deal. You know, we still like, I remember, you know, Red Envelope turned it down or Netflix, all those things, yeah, you know, yeah. IFC turned it down. I, everybody basically still turned it down and it took years until Benton mm-hmm. came to it. But by that point, we were able to book a theater um, book the anthology for a week and where it played with my dad's family, with two wrenching departures so they did you know a Ken and Aza Jacob's week so back to back and with that I was able to get some good reviews and times in the village voice and with that I was able to bring in meet and really bring in um Hunter Gray and Alex Herlowski and Paul Mazze and people that made up artist public domain and get them involved in Mama's Man. Um, and so you, so that was the film you wanted to make next. Yeah, I definitely, I had a draft of it, um, mm-hmm. early draft of it. I had also once again, gone out to Sundance for the first time in support of my friends, Mikkel and Goran who made the film risk cutters um, and also from my class at AFI, so I'd gone out there. I had met Alex Orlowski. I kind of knew from the neighborhood of Lower Manhattan. He lived around the corner from my folks' house, so I'd kind of run into him whenever I was back in the, ta- in the city or through mutual friends. Mm. I saw him at Sundance. He invited me to see the film that he produced, Half Nelson, and um, which I cared for very much. And then from that point on, me and Alex started talking, and I started... I sent him this draft of Mama's Man, and we started talking about trying to make it a reality. And is it like you know the easiest thing to do because it stars your parents as the parents of this guy, and it's filmed in the house they live in. You grew up in the apartment. Do you call it the house? What do you call that thing? Loft. Loft. Yeah, what do you think, <laughs> man? What do you think? It's, <laughs> it's it, well, it's an incredible workplace. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's this incredible space. I can't think of it's because when the movie's going on, 
and then you see that guy, and actually it is Alex in the stairway, huh? Right. Yeah, when you see that, I forget, like, oh, my God, this is actually in a building. Because you're inside, it's yeah. such a unique universe by itself, and then you realize, well, there's, like, neighbors <laughs> under them, around them. But anyway, so that, plus it's your parents, plus it's a, a, a son. I mean, how do you, or people just want to hear about how autobiographical it is? I don't know. I mean, you know, I use, I try to use what's valuable, Mm-hmm. to me what i have that i've been given you know and that was the same idea with putting gerardo and diaz in that movie um and put the things and my parents in that place are yeah. or to have access to that to have their trust and to have that is is particular and for me extremely valuable um and also there was a weight there's a there's a big weight to it where i don't want to i don't want to do wrong by them. I don't want. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make a misstep with them. But I always knew that, in a lot of ways, my parents are the best thing about me. You know, like when uh, you know, I had a, you know, I had a like I went out with a girl for a while, and when we broke up, she tried to continue the relationship with my parents, and I was like, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. You do if you, you're breaking up with me. There's no way you get like that's not that's not part of the deal. Like you can't that can't happen. You know, like like that. You know, right. you lose it all. You know, you lose. You're not gonna the entire all of Disneyland. So I don't know. I mean, um, and that's that's kind of uh, in a lot of ways. It's it, and it wasn't an immediate thing. You know, I wrote the thing that I knew that I had that I was very very attached to was the home. It was the place, and yeah. I, I always knew that was temporary. It's to think of your parents as temporary is a reality, but it's very di- was, it's very difficult to face. But the place itself, I know, I knew being a rental, it won't always be there for me. So that's what the immediate thing was, and that's also the thing that I couldn't put in the screenplay. Like I couldn't, I couldn't. That was the, the, when I was talking about finding like uh, trying to find a space in the writing. Mm-hmm. That was where I ha- I knew once I put something there, I can discover there's so much there for me to record that I can never trans to put into words. Like will never do justice. And I remember even ch- when I started working on getting the producers involved, the first thing I did was shoot with Toby a bunch of um, you know roll a couple rolls of 16 millimeter in the mm-hmm. house and said look this is this is what I'm talking about this is the place you know and um, and I brought them over to the home too that was that was the stock that I had that was my selling point right. you know and then having the, my parents I don't know if the producers or even you know the other actors or the crew could fully see the worth of having my folks in there until the film was done and suddenly it was to a very small section of the world it was very important that they were in this film and it drew them to wanting to see the film but so many people that don't know you or your parents are so drawn to just you know i guess that i guess you say their performances i mean i feel like you captured them even though putting a camera, putting a crew makes people act different. Yeah. But they are home. They are doing, a cre- they're, they're used to being creative. They're doing something creative with their son. So there's a little bit of performance, but it seems, you know. 
I'm I'm, I'm capturing. I think I'm capturing a side of them, like a a side. Mm-hmm. You know, a, 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 a maybe a couple, if not just one dimension of what they are, also pushed to an extreme by not having by being with a single son that is doing things that's very very different than what I do. Unlike mm-hmm. me and my sister which have a completely different effect on them. Mm-hmm. But I needed to figure out a way to kind of where you know, where were this where was the schism going to be? Where was the tension going to be in this story and what the conflict was because I don't really have that conflict the conflict that I have with my folks um it's not it's not about what I do. Mm-hmm. You know. And it's not that should they don't have that with your sister either, right? No. You know, that's not the thing. They didn't push us in a direction, but we're also doing things that we care about and that they care about, you know? Are you, are you almost filming an alternate reality then? Are you, like, thinking, like, maybe... Or is it just an interesting story, this kid going home? Well, I remember, you know, something that stayed with me for a really long time was the Cassavetes, and I, I don't know how to... I'm not going to quote it right, but I remember him saying that he didn't... He wrote about enemies, and he wrote about people that he didn't like because by the time he was finished with the film, he had learned how to fall in love with them, and then they wouldn't be able to touch him. They wouldn't be able to affect him in a mm-hmm. bad way. And that stayed with me a lot when I read that, and I read that many, many, many years ago. And I don't even know if that's anywhere near exactly what he said, right. but that's at least what I walked away from it. So writing about a... a a kid, a guy that's chosen to become a nine to five um, person, you know, who's living in this kind of apartment with a carpet and a wife and a baby to, to go through, to try to get myself onto his feet. I found to be a lot more exposing of the things that I would try to hold back the thing of my, of true insecurities that I have. I think if I was writing about me, I wouldn't have gone there, but, I am somebody that wants security. I do. I've been. I've wanted carpets before. I wanted to have. I wanted to have a nine to five. I want to have. Um, you know, some kind of safety that, even now, it's mm-hmm. still. You know, you just feel like you're swinging vine to vine. Your mom will make you anything you need to eat <laughs> or drink. That that scene drives yeah. uh, my wife a little crazy. She's like, "Yeah, your mom does that too." Every <laughs> goddamn thing well, you want, was, everything you ask for, <laughs> cookies. I can't tell you, man. Like, first off, like you know, I got the that film did well. You know, that film did really well for yeah. me in a lot of ways. You know, and include brought me all across the world to show it. Mm-hmm. And man, to have each time I'd go into, you know. Torino or Slovenia or whatever, and the, you know Poland, the Krakow, whatever. Some and that people would come up to me and go, "I don't know how this film will do other places, but this, mm-hmm. this is exactly our. Our men are exactly like this, and the moms <laughs> are exactly like this. So I, I think this is a very Polish film, and I don't know. I don't think it's uh whatever, but I know right. this. This is a very Italian film because this is exactly you know, and the Slovenia. This is the, our men have this issues, you know, like, and I heard it over and over and over, and it was it was great to hear, you know. Like, it's so sad. <laughs> but so then, what do your parents say about the about the film? 
Um, I mean, which has got to be hard, just you know, anybody watching themselves. You know, I think, um, yeah, exactly. I think that they see, ultimately, I think that they care very much for the film. I think that they see where I'm poking fun of them and also where I'm, um, you know, I, I, that I push them into kind of extremes. I think that they feel yeah. good about the film, but I know that they know the reality is that it only represents a kind of... Uh, slightly you know a distorted weird side of them and that their life is they continue they go on and on and on yeah you know which the film um you know doesn't exist in um, my favorite scene in it is uh when he winds up the uh the little baby toy yeah and just lets it climb towards him without saying anything at all it was really nice yeah, me too. I mean, that was a thing, you know. I mean, if there's one person that really saw the the value that my parents were bringing to the film, um, besides me at the time, was was Toby, cinematographer, because mm-hmm. came over there and we'd have, you know, we'd have dinner and we talked and we shoot and i was staying in my parents house while i was putting it together you know for a couple months beforehand i'd gone there and mm-hmm. maybe a month early and so then toby came and we'd sit down and um we'd talk and he'd talk and i think he he was seeing what i see in them you know very quickly and so like that whole wedding dress scene where they do that with the with the lights, you know, that's something that um, they they did. There's this moment in Mama's Man where the Mikey's trying to sleep, but the parents are downstairs looking at this kind of light installation where they put this light bulb inside this old wedding dress and puts mm-hmm. on a dimmer and it kind of glows magically in and out. And that was something that my parents mentioned doing to toby and i in 1960 something and then Hmm. toby was like we need to put that on film one way or another whether it winds up in the film and then i was able to kind of come up with some kind of quick scene i asked my mom do you know how we could construct it oh i still have the dress you know of course like we haven't taken out since 1961 but yeah it's (laughs) it's there and then she takes out the wedding and they set it all up and 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 something like that exactly with the the baby too like that that headless baby was near the dinner table and i think toby and i we both saw it and my dad and we talked about or maybe my dad even did that while we were having dinner or something and yeah. we, we were able to see like these moments need to wind up in the film and what was good about mama's man which you know which terry didn't doesn't allow is that we were able to just shoot scenes for mama's man we were able to go to a certain place, um, get like halfway through the shooting of Mama's Man, and then take a couple days before Mikey shaves, where it was just about exploring that place and go completely off and just try different things of recording this home. And very much like Good Times Kid, there was no way of failing. Like one way or another, I was gonna wind up with home footage, like on film. You know, like if it didn't wind up in the movie, I'd be happy to hold on to this stuff. And the same thing with Good Times Kid. If this film didn't work out, I'd still be happy to have that place on Grafton Street documented. That my, you know, my friends. Um, did they? Was your room the same? Was when you were growing up? Did they save it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that stuff doesn't really change, you know. And it's still yeah. like that. Um, but 
you know, with 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 a film like Terry being a bigger production and much need, things need to be on schedule. There's not that place to go. Okay, on you know tomorrow we'll just see what we'll shoot. So for Terry, you already knew Patrick Dewitt before this, the writer. Yeah, Patrick, I knew just from living in Echo Park and through Diaz being good friends with his wife Leslie. Mm-hmm. And he bartended at the three clubs, and I wound up increasingly going to that bar just to kind of talk to him more or less about music. And then one day he gave me the manuscript for what would become his first novel, Ablutions, and I thought the writing was great. I was super, super impressed, and from that point on, Mm -hmm. I intended to work with him. I didn't see how I could take Ablutions and turn it into a movie, but I wanted to, to work with Pat. And, um... After Mama's Man, I had a few stories that I was pursuing, one that I'm still trying to crack up in writing and just trying to figure out how to, or it's been kind of circling in my head for years now, mm-hmm. and I have not figured out a way yet to kind of put into words, but um, Pat came to me, Pat sent me some writing, and uh, one of the one of the pieces was about this character named Terry, and... I thought that there was a film in there, and then that's how that whole began. Sorry, it was a story or a script? There you go. It wasn't. A, it, w- it was kind of like a, a collection of pages. It wasn't mm. a script, and it wasn't a book. It was just kind of like a bunch of writing about a bunch of different characters that kind of intersected, and he didn't know what he wanted to do with it. I don't mm. know if he felt like it was... A, he didn't feel like it was a book, mm-hmm. and he didn't know really what it was, but I definitely felt that it could be a good movie. Right. And it was like sort of following Terry, that character. Yeah, I mean, what he showed me originally was one long internal monologue from this character, Terry. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of, it it went through different moments in Terry's life, but it was all how he was processing processing this internally. Mm -hmm. And so the the challenge was was how to take that character and and make it a bit more external. Mm Mm-hmm since we weren't going to go for a voiceover or anything like that. No voice. <laughs> no, I try to I try to avoid that. And here is what I'm thinking now. Well, especially in this case, I mean, because yeah. then, I mean, then you get the wonder years. Right. <laughs> we'll put this up before people see the film, or maybe people won't get a chance to see it by the time they hear about it. How would you describe it for people that haven't seen it? Well... On a basic level, it's it's a story about a kid in a small town who's struggling through school and mm-hmm. in some ways has kind of come to peace with that struggle when the story begins. He just knows that his, he's going to have a tough life and he's resigned and he's going to be okay with that as far as you can be okay. And then his paths cross with uh, his principal and with some other characters and suddenly things are different things have changed you know slightly but maybe drastically farther down the line um the thing that attracted me to it firstly and foremost was that it was somebody else's story and somebody else's experience growing up very far and different than my own and I felt very close to Terry and I felt very close to this story even though um my only way into into this world was through the words that Pat wrote it seems that it captures sort of a true outsider. You know, I mean, so many films 
<clears throat> especially, you know, the neighborhoods we live in, you know, it's, you're a hipster if you're an outsider, if you're uh, a right. n- not just a nerd, but like, oh, society doesn't like you. That's one of the hippest things there is now, but a lot of those people aren't really outsiders. That's exactly true. I mean, Terry is a big kid, and no matter what you put on him, what clothes he wears, anything that he does, he's still going to be too big for this world, you know? He's too big for that that town, and he's too big for that school, and he's too big to be, you know, anything more than a kid that's going to get picked on, mm-hmm. you know? And a lot of what's attracted me to outsider situations is just been costumes, you know? I know that. Like, I feel there's there's things that I feel differently than other people, but I know that my way of expressing it has always been to go, okay, to, you know, pick out out of a catalog outsider clothes, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and in a lot of ways that was the same story with Mikey you know Mikey didn't look like an outsider but where he came from forced him to be an outsider it was the thing that wasn't going to allow him to just be a 9 to 5 and not to think about what he's doing and what he's leaving behind it was part of what was raised the the the, mm-hmm. the films that his father made the things that they the wedding dress all that stuff was something that was going to be very hard for him to deny um, and it was it was creeping up when Mama's Man takes place, and in this case, same thing with Terry. I think that um, there's just this external and internal uh, situation that's just gonna separate him no matter what he does. Right from how people are treating him, even if it, you know it's you can't you can't be a winner in other people's terms. You know, Terry wears pajamas at school every day, which is something Mm -hmm. when I read and had in the screenplay and it always scared me, you know, because that just sounds like a quirky Sundance film, right? Like, Mm -hmm. okay, and the kid wears pajamas or whatever, you know? And um, what I thought, I, I just wanted it, I wanted this to be treated as a detail, as a part of, this person, but not what makes him up, not what defines him. That the pajamas, the pajamas, the pajamas is, uh, if it's anything, it's 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 that he's resigned to. This is my life. I'm gonna be comfortable in having a hellish life. Right. You know, this is the one thing I might as well wear what fits me fine, as I get tortured. Right. You know, like what else do what 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 do I have to gain by getting into something that's uncomfortable? This, no, these people are never gonna, and. These people are never gonna take, accept me, or whatever, treat me well, and that's a point of departure, though, for this film. I think the fact that Terry thinks that his life is going a certain direction, and this is how his life is gonna be, and the fact is, is that all these kind of uh, things happen to us and intercept that are hard to picture, but do happen and, and change our course, no matter what ones up that we think we're on right. and did you have to did you feel like you had to work a little harder to make sure it didn't turn out cute and quirky and didn't turn out uh you know therefore false i i think that you work that hard to make sure that that doesn't happen in every film i think that good times could have could have been the same exact thing right. and i think i could have fallen into that with mama's man about you know my parents being quirky or being weird like that's not what i was looking i think it's like it's about what I have to offer as a f- filmmaker 
I think, is hopefully being caring a lot about what I'm doing, about the characters I'm putting on the screen, and um, about what I'm what I'm making. You know, and that that's what keeps you from being quirky, from laughing at shit. You know, thinking that this is all, you know, a stupid joke. Was it different working with um, the professional? Well, we were talking a little bit about professional actors, but Riley and and yeah, Tim. Yeah, man, working I mean, with is the guy Tim, is Tim done, professional actor? Uh, <laughs> Tim Heidecker does have a uh, <coughs> has a role as a Dickie Jim teacher. Right. Um, Perfect. Yeah. Um, well, first off, working with John C. Riley, I mean, yeah, he's done fifty films, right? And I've done this year, uh, right? Exactly, right? And he was, uh, what? He just came from the Lynn Ramsey film, and he was heading off to a Polanski film. Like, yeah, what did that do to my head? Yeah, it was it <laughs> wasn't easy to kind of figure out the best way to approach him at first. You know, I mean, um, but he's yeah. always he's always so good. He always comes into something and works really good if it's uh you that's know, exactly it, it. whether it, it's what a lot of budget was or the way he was personal. treating me you know mm-hmm. that he wasn't treating me like okay here's a kid you know that that was all man this is there that was scorsese but now here's the, here's my time to do a kid film he was treating me with an incredible amount of respect and he was listening to me and he was taking it very seriously and when we weren't shooting his scene and i'd go to go get him and you know we're shooting in a school so all the actors had a classroom that they could go in when we weren't when we're setting up the shot mm-hmm. and when i'd walk into that room he was going through mm-hmm. the screenplay going through the scene and just seeing that type of um intensity yeah gave me confidence and he like he said a good thing after uh uh a Q&A after cyrus where, you know, somebody was, oh, it must be refreshing to be on this little film. And he says, like, I don't know, I've worked with a lot of dickheads on $50,000 films, and I've worked with cool people on $50 million films, and vice versa. So, yes, this film, I mean, he did enjoy Cyrus. He really liked it, and he did like working with the Duplass brothers and working at that level, but it's not about the level. It's not about every person, every, every single piece of it so individualistic. It's not as simple as like money Absolutely, dictating it. Man. Like, God, I mean, you know, I just, uh, I mean, I just went and saw Bridesmaids the other day and I thought it was fucking great. You know, yeah. I had such a good time in the last 10 minutes I could have done without, but I really enjoyed the film and I felt like there was a lot of life in there. And there's, Lord knows I've sat through enough $10 movies to think that were completely dead and had nothing to say. You know, like I know that the, the budget of a film says little to the, the integrity and especially now where cheap films can look incredibly polished. I mean, there's, it's just down, right? I mean, just yeah. film video looks great now. Right? It, it would just become, it's very hard to discern what a budget is. Um, and I know that the war stories about making movies, like the struggles I could tell you about making good times kid or mama's man, all those things are now I know that those things are irrelevant. That they're, they're they're just what making movies are at any budget, you know, mm-hmm. that there was the same but different struggles with Terry when you'd go there and go, OK, we have this amount of time and we have this much space and we have to figure out. That's just that's how it is making movies. Yeah. But, did, uh, you, did you pull some of your high school into Terry or is it more of a Patrick stuff or made up? Um, 
a little bit of in between, you know. Yeah. I um I was a I don't know if I ha- I have like a lot of regrets, not regrets about high school because you just how it is, but mm. I wasn't a particularly nice person in high school. You weren't. I, no. What were, you, what were you angry about? I think in general, just, you know, there's just changes that are happening yeah. in your body that just drives you insane, and you don't know what's going on. Did um, you have girlfriends? Yeah, I had girlfriends, but I didn't know why. <laughs> like, I didn't know why I liked them. I didn't know why they'd like me. I didn't oh, know well. why I wanted to be with them more than skating. Like, all that confused me, you know what I mean? It just yeah. made me, like, mean. And also, I was like, I was a real coward. I was, I was, I was like, and I was the worst type because I was the type that had bigger friends that would I would start shit with people knowing that I couldn't and I didn't have to back it up because I had friends to, to, uh, right, to safety numbers sort of. Thing. Yeah, yeah. I was like the, you know, the worst kind of pussy basically. <laughs> and then what? <laughs> and then what happened? You just grew up. Um. Went to college. You had experiences. Yeah, things sort of yeah. I got I got up. to college, and um, what happened in college? I mean, definitely a lot of hallucinogens, and that was that was really helpful for me. Like it did mm. take me to places, just kind of calm you down, and obviously yeah. you just do things. And then I fell in love. Um, you know, I fell in love when I was. 19 mm-hmm. and that completely changed me in a huge huge way um and uh i remember you know a lot of my high school friends that i'm still very close with me just like man they did not like the new Oza, man they wanted the dick Oza, like the one really? that you know that just like <laughs> made them laugh that just fucking pop shit and just was stupid you know but Instead, they got googly eye. Like there, there should be no no. That you should never say never. And the number twenty three is magical, and everything's a fractal. You know what I mean? Like uh, they yeah. got, they got the kid that was on clouds, and it took a while for me to kind of come down and find some kind of balance. But man, that feeling of falling in love and being like, you can hardly breathe. Just, mm. just. Just took me out of, took me out of uh, anything that I could think about how to be macho or be a man. Well, did that did that end badly? No, um, it ran its course. You know, it's mm. what drove me to Los Angeles. Actually, um, mm. uh, it it was definitely one of the. You know, it was it was when I look back at that relationship. Um, you know, lasted between 20 and 26, which are huge years, yeah. you know, um, which are big. And for the most part, we're, you know, it was a very healthy relationship. And when it came, it was, of course, a huge, the world was upside down. But when it ended, 
but it was the motivational factor for me to apply to AFI, mm -hmm. to come out here and to just find out who am I without this person? Because I had no idea, you know? I didn't know where I began and that person started. Everything, we'd been breathing each other's air to the point that it had gone stale. We didn't know how to move anymore. But I came to Los Angeles, got this cheap place on Echo Park for 25 a month, you know? Yeah. Lived next door to these you know, I lived uh, next door to these gangsters and my, you know, going to sleep to bullets and waking up to roosters and it was just being alive, you know. I felt yeah. so fully alive when I got here and I had so much to say now. Yeah. Going through that love, I had no needs to know inside of me and I had a lot more inside of me. And then all of a sudden there's Gerardo and I'm like, and he's showing me this film and he's showing me this film and he's showing me that and we're trading with each other and you know i uh it, it's given me enough fuel to to keep going yeah yeah and then you were lucky enough the bike girl came along too i was lucky enough but i like to think that too that i was open enough mm -hmm. you know like yeah i was working on a car but i wasn't just looking at the you know at the car what did happen to that car? Where is it? I have never seen this car. Oh, yeah. No, that car, we had to drive into a pole and we, it, like... <laughs> For a film? Yeah, it was basically stopped turning off, mm. you know? The engine? Yeah, like you couldn't turn it <laughs> off at the end. And it was leaking so much gas inside the car that it would take me about 30 or 40 minutes to figure out where I was when I, after I get to a place. Like, I was so <laughs> out of it. I was just so poisoned right and you, you know it just i just ran to the ground like i had to turn it off and turn it on with a with a wrench and then by the end it just wouldn't turn off and i just remember just driving it straight to where they crushed it but before that we shot some stupid little thing of driving into something just did to that, see did that stop the engine ramming into something at least um no they i don't know man i actually just let it i drove into the place where they crush it yeah. and just walked away and, and the engine said, was running Here. yeah and just like you guys will handle figure out how to turn this thing off or what's going on i mean it was just the but it, it served me really well yeah, yeah um Funny. and then you know my parent my dad retired from binghamton so i got the camry oh that's what now a safe and secure and mature driver <laughs> Thanks for listening to Cinemad and Aza Jacobs. His new film, Terry, is out in theaters everywhere now. It stars Jacob Waisaki and John C. Riley, and it's great. Its website is terry, T-E-R-R-I, dash movie, dot com. Terry.com was taken by uh, some religious preacher. Thanks again.